I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is that silver-haired construct, Jeff Goad. Hello! And with us this week is special guest Todd Bunn, proprietor of Gateway Games and co-host of the soon-to-be-coming D50 Shades of D&D podcast. Hello, Todd. Hello. So, Todd, uh, we would like to ask people how they got into gaming. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit about your background there. So, uh, for well, growing up, we always played a lot of board games with the family and stuff. But sometime after I saw the Rankin and Bass Hobbit cartoon, mm-hmm. uh, I also started to see stuff about D&D. D&D was pretty big into in the news, mostly for negative reasons. And then I saw it would have been when the Moldvay box set was coming out and the, a local bookstore had like a big display. And I was like, that's what I want for my birthday. So my, uh, for, yeah. my, for my 13th birthday... Uh, so I didn't quite know the difference between basic and expert and advanced. So I got the basic, the expert, uh, the basic and expert box sets, the mold bay and the cook, mm-hmm. and then the AD and D players handbook and the dungeon master's guide. And I was totally confused, but I got, <laughs> up. you know, w- w- when you're 13 right. years old, there's only two days of the year you get up like on a non-school day before 8 a.m. <laughs> and that's your birthday right. and Christmas. So I took the Moldvay uh, basic, which I, di- I didn't know it was called the Moldvay basic then. No one cared. Right. And I read it cover to cover. And then I was like, Uncle Scotty, we're going to play this game right now. And we proceeded <laughs> to play the Keep on the Borderlands for the next 12 hours. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I, I, I completely had the whole fire and forget spell thing screwed up. So I was like, just cast it whenever you want and we'll figure it out later. This has now led you to being proprietor of Gateway Games. What was that, what was that pathway like from, from that so, day? So <laughs> the very next day at nine years old, he right. uh, got a small business loan. Right, right. 13. It was 13. Yeah. No, so, <laughs> okay, okay. so I, I was always the guy that, were, you know, the games were always at my house. I, re- I was constantly recruiting people that had no idea what the game was. I was uh, calling people up and saying, you should come over. We're going to play this game today. Get over here. And that continued on through the teen years and then in my 20s. And then sometime 10, 11, or 12 years ago, I started a Yahoo group to s- just so gamers locally in southwestern Ohio could get together and talk on a forum back when Yahoo groups were a thing that people paid attention right. to. And then I started meetup groups, uh, RPG meetup groups. I started one in Dayton, and then I started one on the east side of Cincinnati. The Dayton group, I don't have anything to do with now. I know it has over a 1,000 members. Wow. And for a short yeah. time, we were one of the ones that were sponsored by Wizards of the Coast. And locally, I was running an RPG meetup in a local game store. And... Uh, the the game store guy there was a little more into like Flames of War and tabletop 
And I was kind mm-hmm. of the bringing in, you know, 15, guy. 16 people to play two and three tables of RPGs once a month. And people coming in the store would come up to me and say, is this your store? And it'd be like, <laughs> no, but that sounds like a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> and and I, I would, you know... Yeah, he was a great guy. Don't get me wrong, but I would go in like a week ahead of time and say, "I'm going to have like 14 people here this week. Maybe you should get some dice." And I would go in, <laughs> and he would have like two sets of dice under the counter, <laughs> and you know, so in I brown, just, brown paper, yeah, wrapped in brown paper. <laughs> yeah. So so and on this side of town, there were lots of magic shops, and there were lots of uh, places. Well, not lots, but several places to play Friday Night Magic, some places mm-hmm. to play Warhammer and Flames of War. And I decided I would just open up a little place and we would mostly play RPGs and board games and hero clicks. Um, so, uh, Todd, one thing I've seen a lot on the net is people saying, I can get together groups for 5e uh, Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, but I really have a hard time getting people to want to play any of these other games that I'm really interested in. Uh, what's your, been your experience at the store? So, 5e, it brings in a lot of people. And if, if you want someone to play other games, I always suggest to people, go join a 5e game show that you're a fun person to play with and you have good ideas. And then you say to them, hey, have you tried Dungeon Crawl Classics? Have you tried Castles and Crusades? Uh, and then they'll be like, oh, you're, you're a cool guy. I like playing with you. Let's see what you have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I like it. And, uh, and I was lucky enough to get to listen to a preview of episode zero of your upcoming podcast, or maybe it's already out by the time this airs. Um, but in it, you guys had a really great term for somebody who plays, who enjoys playing lots of games. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you want to share that term with us? Yeah, that is polygamerous. <laughs> yes. So, um, Hoy, I, I believe I, you're also polygamerous. I am definitely. That's the only thing I'm poly on at the moment. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we can start chatting about what we're here for, which is Lynn Carter's The Enchantress of World's End. So, um, Todd, which version of the book are you working with? So it's, uh, I think it's from 75. First printing, May 1975, DAW, printed in USA. Can you see that? The same it one. It looks like we are three for three mm-hmm. with this beautiful Michael Whalen cover. Mm-hmm. And this is, in fact, his first uh, American paperback cover. Really? Yeah. yeah. It's gorgeous. Right. Now, one thing I will say is Ganelon Silvermane looks a little bit more like Ganelon Blonde Mane. Right. <laughs> and our Red Queen, or Red Enchantress, looks a little bit more like an Olive Enchantress. But despite those two things, it's a gorgeous cover. I love the angle that uh, that the Enchantress is looking at us from. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we've got the Bazanga Bird in the distance and the huge setting moon, and the and one of the many wild cities we went to in the right. horizon. Most likely the one that's actually the Carvan, whatever the the automated city. Yeah, yeah, Kazvar Khan. Kazvar Khan. Yeah, yeah. Waitland is actually pretty famous for actually reading the texts of the books that he's illustrating, which is not always the case with paperback artists. So, and also so, how He Man is Ganelon on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I, I collect a lot of old paperbacks just because of the co- the covers. Sometimes, especially as I get older, I get the large print ones if they're available. But I mm-hmm. still make sure I have the old '70s one because I love the cover so much. And it's also just so nice seeing this with like the nice yellow DAW spine. That always warms my heart. You know, my original intention in this project was just to read the ebooks as much as possible and get stuff from the library. Then I started seeing Jeff's copies come in. I'm like, oh. yeah, <laughs> I was tempting you. <laughs> I was the your eBay succubus. There you go. <laughs> so All the, right. So well, I just want to comment on something I've noticed about a lot of the Lynn Carter books I found, like at half price books and stuff. So many of them, their spines are in perfect condition. Like (laughs) nobody has read these like seven times. (laughs) That is a very fair and astute observation, my friend. Mine's got a very clean spine. Yeah, mine has a very clean spine. (laughs) And mine, you guys all know from the show how much I abuse my copies, and mine also still probably looks newer than anyone after I have finished reading it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So before we head on to the library, we'll take a quick look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Propitiate. Propitiate. And propitiate is found on page 59. And it's actually found twice on this page. The first time it says... The occasion was an annual feast, which in certain heathen and outlandish regions of Gondwain, such as that from which the Red Queen came, shamans and warlocks made sacrifice in order to propitiate the moon. And then again, later in that same paragraph, it says, few believe such sacrificial feasts could avert the cosmic catastrophe, but a bit of propitiation never hurts. And propitiate means to win or regain the favor of a god, spirit, or person by doing something that pleases them. Uh, Now, Todd, do you have something you would like to contribute to this segment? I do. It's on page 48. Prognathus. Ah, that's a good one. It says, uh, let's see, let me, I have it right here. Bald and hairless, with bullet heads, they had heavy prognathous jaws and long, lipless, gash-like mouths that made them look rather froggy. And uh, it's the Death Dwarves. Little green I love bubbles. it. Now, I would be lost if I didn't keep track of these word of, words of the day because I was also eyeballing that one. And I was like, wait, have we used that one before? And we did. On episode eight, that was our word of the day for Philip Jose Farmer's The Maker of Universes. Oh, okay. So, I, so I, it's I, a great word, though. It's so very Hygaxian. I haven't listened to that one because uh, I haven't read that book yet. So mm-hmm. I, I I have to tell you this. Uh, one, I'm a huge fan of the podcast, and I created a spreadsheet, a spreadsheet from your list of books, <laughs> and I, I highlight down and I note whether or not I have a paperback copy a Kindle copy or an audiobook copy. And then I keep track of which ones I've read. And the only complaint I have about the podcast is you're not reading it, them in the order that I want you to read them in. <laughs> <laughs> so, Very fair. So <laughs> I, I have my spreadsheet up right now and I have read 118 of the books on Ooh. your list of 290. Wow. <laughs> nice. There Good go. job. I've currently read 63 of them. Nice. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. And so that sort of brings us to sort of one of the things that sort of the beginning question that we like to ask people, um, which is 
uh, obviously you've read a lot of this fiction now. Were you aware of Appendix N at the part when you know you studied gaming or that something came along later? So before I even knew what Appendix N was, uh, I was reading Conan novels, but mm-hmm. not not differentiating who the author was. It was just like Conan. I was a huge fan of the Marvel comics in the 70s mm-hmm. and Savage Sword of Conan. And then I started reading Conan novels. And uh, one day I was flipping through my Dungeon Master's Guide and I noticed uh, Appendix N. And I started going down the list. And wow, it was like, wow, it says Conan here. So let's see what some of these other things are. Uh, so that would have been, you know, I was 13, 14 years old. So I dove into some of them. So like uh, uh, the Michael Moorcock, uh, I got mm-hmm. some Elric and I got some HP Lovecraft. And, and I kind of stopped for a while at that point because... Uh, Dragonlance novels and Forgotten Realms novels and the Shannara books started coming out and Piers Anthony's Xanth series. And I, I got sidetracked with all that, but I, I was obsessed a bit with the H.P. Lovecraft for some time. And mm-hmm. I just barely skimmed into some of the Michael Moorcock. So it was probably the 90s, the early 90s, probably when I was running a second edition campaign. I started digging more into Edgar Rice Burroughs and the Fafford and Grey Mouser. So it, it's basically affected my reading list for, <laughs> you know, what, 40 years of my life now? <laughs> 38, and, yeah. Meanwhile, Lynn Carter there was crying in a corner all alone, but we're here to talk about <laughs> yeah, it today. <laughs> yes. I did not read a Lynn Carter book until after you guys started the podcast, and I saw him on the list, but... Going out, I actually started with the wrong one. I started with Warrior of World's End and then finished and then read Giant of World's End, which actually makes uh, Giant of World's End like better and more touching. Right. Because it's theoretically the last book in the series, even though it was the first one he wrote. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Now, as somebody like us who's read quite a few of these books, what is the one thing that you've read specifically because it was on the appendix N that had you the most befuddled? Uh, as so you're far just as like, why and why am I reading this? Why is this on this list? <laughs> uh, Did, or, or have you not really encountered that? Martian Go Home, maybe. Have you read that one yet? <laughs> that, yeah, oh, yeah. 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 That one, that would be that or the Blue Star would be my vote. <laughs> Yeah, Martians Go Home is absolutely my least favorite of all the ones we've read so far. So, yes. So that being said, I greatly enjoyed it, but I had no idea why it would, you know, uh, it would be on the the list. Right. Sure. <laughs> all right. So diving into the Enchantress of World's End, uh, Todd, what do you think of this book? So I love this book, and it has nothing to do with it being good. I love. <laughs> I well love said. I love this book for the same reason I love Hawk the Slayer and, uh, you know, uh, Beastmaster. You know, it's, it's, it's all of those things that I like in adventures, just not done very well. Right. In fact, it's, it's not, there, there's nothing in it very memorable that happens. I, I know I read it shortly before I talked to Jeff about it at GaryCon. And as we got closer, I decided to cram through the audiobook in the last couple of days to get caught up. 
And I'm still pretty vague on some of the details because right. it, it there's there, there's cool characters, there's cool imagery, and it's it's just not very memorable. It does not have, as far as I can tell, a narrative. <laughs> that's, right, that's, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, they're there in this town, which is very memorable, that's super law-abiding during the day, and then it becomes this total den of debauchery at night, right? It's right. It's a free city of chicks. Right, yeah. free city of chicks. Um, and then they have to escape that, but it's not really like, oh, we're just going to visit town, and then we're planning to go to see the uh, the the uh, Gemerdy return to her land, right? Yeah, yeah. And then... They escape from this town, which like is more complicated than it should be for some reason. And then Ganelon gets separated, and he ends up over, you know, and the the, the Bazunga bird flies off with him, and then crashes in the hills. And then he gets captured by the Death Dwarves that you just described. And then he's with the Red Enchantress, and then the other people are going looking for him, and it's still not a plot, right? And then the yeah. Red Enchantress is like, uh, like, they oh, get lost, right? Red Enchantress is like, oh, here's the Superman. I'm going to breed with him so I can create a race of Supermen. And he's like got the sort of sexual maturity of a 12-year-old mentally, but physically he's, you know, this godlike specimen. Yeah. And so it's like, wow. Well, well, you know, that's think, actually a very funny section. I, I don't think he has the sexual mentality of a 12-year-old either <laughs> yeah. because uh, he just doesn't care. <laughs> right, right. He's he's uh, asexual at this point. In this, yeah. In this, one thing that really cracked me up from the uh, patron book club that we had with Adam Styers earlier is he was talking about how Conan is this like wish fulfillment for like the adult straight male, and Ganelon almost to him felt like the um, wish fulfillment of like an eight year old boy. <laughs> oh, I can see that. And like going with the He Man thing, it's it's like you know here he here here's like this kind of like cartoonish action figure. Um, basically genitalialists, although we, we hear again and again that Ganlon does indeed have anatomically correct genitals. Uh, he just has no desire or whatever to use them. Um, but I thought that was kind of a fun observation about Ganelon. Right. Meanwhile, I mean, there's a ton of sex happening in this book, right? All around. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really amazing. So. Absolutely. This is a very, um, you know, for our um, editor of Ballantine's Adult Fantasy, you can clear, you can clearly tell he's relishing in the adult part of that. Right. <laughs> yeah. When, when like, the oh. Enchantress has him captive and is trying to get him... Uh, I guess, sexually stimulated and they're going through all the different kind, kinds of servants and they start right. sending in the younger boys and right. the animals, old men and women. Yes. Like, it's like, like, what, what, like she's like subhuman, is, semi-human. Right. Like, is, is he just not into me or is he just not into anything? Yeah. Let's test him and find out. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and if he is into something that's not like me, then let's just have him killed and we'll just right, take right. his, you know, and yeah. it, at least if he's like into like young boys, then that then it's that's okay because then it's not about like he'd never be into me. That's fine, right? But yeah. if he's into like some other woman, that's terrible, right? <laughs> totally. Now, um, one thing that I thought that this book did a great job of is I thought we we had a really fun variety of characters here, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think Lynn Carter tries to do that in his writing, but I think he tends to be. More, I think he was more successful with it here than he was with the previous two World's End books. Mm -hmm. Because although, you know, the Nitrix and the Illusionist of Nerolon um, and Ganelon himself are three very different kinds of characters, 
um, we don't really get a whole lot of depth to them, but I really feel like a lot of our newer, newly introduced characters, um, I think like Gurf mm-hmm. and Gurf the Tiger uh, Man, Gurf the Tiger Man <laughs> and uh, Fadia, our little effeminate 12 year old boy slash sex object, right. <laughs> um, are both very fascinating and fun characters that they threw in here. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think Fadia was actually a really well-drawn character, even though he's initially just meant to be, as you say, a sex object. Yeah, the, yeah. the Tiger Man is one of my favorite characters in the whole mm-hmm. series. Right, right. <laughs> and he gets all he gets all like, oh, that's my boy, when he's like, Fadia is talking to Fadia's his little buddy, and he's like, eh, you know, <laughs> go and send messages for me. <laughs> and also when he meets Griff, we get this really, this really mm-hmm. great line mm-hmm. on page 69 where it says, in the very stronghold of his enemies, Ganelon Silvermane had found a friend. Aww. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ganelon, you found a buddy. Right. You and your little tiger man. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, what I loved about Fadia, though, is here we have our traditional um, uh, sword and sorcery trope of the, um, the damsel in distress. You know, uh, the, the, the pampered... Um, 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 soft and delicate um, woman who needs to be protected, uh, but also can occasionally really impress you with uh, with her kind of um, out of the blue street smarts and adaptability to the situation she's in. Here we are with that exact archetype, but then turned on its head because in this case, it's like a 13-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought it was really fun to kind of see that very sword and sorcery archetype taken and turned on its head. It's true. And and he actually develops. Like once he's in the sort of fairyland, he's like, you know, he becomes like fans, friends with the, the cockatrice and the dragon. And he's like, oh, this is an adventure. Oh, that's great, you know. Um, but he still has some of that childish, like like when people are making decisions, like, well, it's just natural. I'm a 12-year-old. I don't make the decisions. You know, we want to go here. Let's go here. It's great. It's all new to him, right? So. Totally. And he meets Lamona, and yeah. it's... Uh, it is alluded to that they get it on, but also he gives her like a, a little, a, like a little makeover too. Right. So it's like, he's his gal pal, but also like they become sexually involved as well. But also at the very end of the book, there's this whole scene where like Fadia falls into the arms of Gurf uh, crying while Gurf like, like cradles him in his big furry arms. <laughs> it's like his character, the, the Fadia character is just so like, um, like somehow like transcends like gender and sexuality in a really fun and interesting way that you don't often see in this style of fiction. I have a question for you guys. Is this sword and sorcery or is this high fantasy? I, th- I think it's still, uh, cause it's not uh, high fantasy usually has a sort of a moral element. I don't want to mm-hmm. quite say that that's not what's present here. Right? This is sort of more picaresque. Um, there's no sort of high overlord, you know, you know, even though Red Enchantress is sort of selfish, she's not inherently evil, right? And she's not like the the dark overlord. Uh, yeah, I, I I'm with Hoy. I would say sword and sorcery. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is uh, in high fantasy. Usually, the stakes are we're saving the world, and that's definitely something that's happening in the World's End series. Um, ultimately, they are there to save the world, which really isn't very sword and sorcery because sword and sorcery is usually about like get the gold, get the woman, get my next drink. Um, But also you're right. I feel like sword and sorcery um, doesn't usually tend to focus too much on the big goods and the big evils and the um, kind of that moral battle, 
which um, Enchanted the World's End also doesn't give a crap about that. The the as far as the big picture goes, uh, even though it's there, as far as what their goal is, and, and you know the saving the world stuff, most of the time you're reading the book, you don't really feel that you, you're just getting these yeah, random right. encounters. <laughs> I mean, the one value that it seems to be. Th- uh, really uh, driven home in this book, though, is the value of friendship and, and sort of found family, right? That these people come together. They're all completely different, but they're, you know, um, you know, the the illusionist is kind of cranky, but everyone respects him. He's kind of the father figure for the, the crew. Um, you know, Griff is like, you know, that cousin who always come through for you when you need him, you know. Um, Ganelon sort of like the, the big brother is a little dull, but he's like very reliable, you know. So this is you know, uh, fantastic four found family kind of thing. And, and it's all about the friendship and, you know, they, they're really proud of Fadia when he, you know, comes into his own and becomes a little more adventurous. Um, so I think that that's the value that's being driven. And, and even the, the people, the, um, the people in the city, the sort of gypsy people that are in the city, the, um, I want to call it the, the I- uh, uh, Iomagoths. Iomagoths. Right. So they become kind of friendly with them. So it's really like like a story about just people traveling around and making friends, which is kind of fun. Yeah. And the characters are definitely the strong point of the book. Uh, you know, they're they're likable. They're interesting. They, they they're different from one another. And their relationships is so much better than like what's actually happening in the story at any given time. Right. <laughs> Right. I agree. I would say it's the the people and the places that make this story fun. The plot itself, um, not so much. Right. But I feel like the people and the places were so strong that I really enjoyed reading this. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that Lynn Carter tends to do is, I mean, all fantasy authors, they steal from other fantasy authors and make it their own. But Lynn Carter generally does it with a little bit less reskinning and a little bit less reworking or rethinking <laughs> right. than other authors would. Um, and... Looking at the um, um, Varesco, the mentalist of Ning, do you guys feel like that is inspired by a high rose journey? With the psionics? I have not read that one. Yeah. Okay. And this comes just two years after high rose journey. So that could be an argument for or against it. I would imagine that Lynn Carter would have read it. And this character very much feels like a part of the evil brotherhood. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, the psionics, I mean, I like the, the whole concept of Gondwana, right? It's literally the end of history, so anything could happen, right? And yeah. um, so, as you say, there's definitely dying Earth. There's some elements of Clark Ashton Smith. Um, one thing that's a little less obvious, but I think I might have mentioned before, is I think there's some Oz in here, because I know that Lynn Carter was a big fan of the Oz books. And so, again, well, that's sort and of... now instead of the Emerald City, we have the Ruby City. Exactly. Yeah, have you read many of the Oz books? I have not read any of the later ones, just like the first couple, so... Same. Yeah, so I, I've read like five of them, and a lot of them are a little adventuring party, kind of very similar to this, and also kind of the randomness of we kind of go spend a few chapters doing this, and then a few chapters doing this. It's, it, there's a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. And also she goes off and meets a whole brand new group of friends, and then brings that group of friends back with her, and then that joins her other group of friends, and that's exactly right. what's happening in the story. Right, right. So there's that sort of fairy tale children's book logic to this book. And maybe that's the lens that we have to see it through, as you say, because there's no sort of linear plot really driving this story, right? It's just right. Um, so what was your favorite section of the book? 
I like all the bits when the Red Enchantress is getting all worked up about whether Ganelon doesn't whether Ganelon likes her or not. <laughs> yeah, that, those sections were really fun. Yeah. How about you, Todd? I completely agree. I yeah. completely agree with that, which is probably why they called the book Enchantress of World's End, right. because that was the best part of the book. Yeah, that's true. I love the Death Dwarves. <laughs> the Death Dwarves are cool. They're all eating like ammonia and broken glass. <laughs> and excrement. Yeah. <laughs> excrement. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also had a lot of fun with the Free City of Chicks. Mm-hmm. You know, like when they first get there and they're walking around and, we're, and they're seeing signs like strong drink, weak morals, <laughs> or a chaste bed is a restful bed. And it's like the town. I also like that the town is called the Free City of Chicks. And I almost wonder, it probably isn't, but if if that was inspired by chick tracks, which I know were a big deal at the time. Because <laughs> uh, that, that town very much feels like it's like a chick tract uh, by day and uh, the purge by night. <laughs> and I also feel like if you wanted to take a look at the free city of chicks, you could use this as allegory for any political view. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could say this, this is Lynn Carter's way of saying that you know, you can't be too debaucherous otherwise, or this could be his way of saying that if you repress too much, these things happen, or you can't have this without also having that. And mm-hmm. um, There could be a lot of allegory in there, or maybe he just thought it would be funny. Right, right. Uh, do, do you get the impression that Lynn Carter might have been a bit debaucherous himself? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was the 70s, you know, or at least, you know, people go to the conventions and, you know. <laughs> Yeah, he references crazy weed. Uh, the thing that really yeah. cracked me up is when they get arrested and their charges are for nocturnal sobriety, continence, pacifism, <laughs> and public decency. Right. <laughs> right. And the, the the guys reading off all the charges, like all the things that they didn't do, like he did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you all the crimes yeah. they didn't commit by right. night. Right. You didn't burn this place down. You didn't rape that person. It's like, well, can we just get to <laughs> It's like he keeps on listening. Like, <laughs> yeah and it's like how when do these people sleep and I'm, it's amazing that like the entire time they're spent spent lawful by day it's not just spent cleaning up the mess by night but. Yeah, don't they mostly just uh pass out by about two o'clock in the morning i, I think, think there was like, that yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um i really feel like this one also has that sort of um if you were to try to uh, maybe shading into gaming, but if you were trying to talk to you about your campaign, you would be hard put to actually say a through line, especially in old school gaming. Maybe it's a, like something like Pathfinder or, you know, current versions of D&D have more of a narrative thread. But if you were just talking about, oh, we had this adventure and we had this adventure, it would read almost like a link in chance of the world's end, right? And then we were here and then we were here and this yeah. guy joined our party, right? It's kind of hex crawly. Yeah. Also, I did a little bit of math here that I want you guys to um, that I want to present to you, and you guys can let me know what your thoughts on it are. So, um, on page thirty-four, Lynn Carter says to us that the supercontinent measured fully sixty million square miles from shore to shore, and I did a quick Google search on that, and currently, all of the landmass on Earth is fifty-seven uh, million square miles. So. Maybe the maybe the sea levels have lowered a bit. We have a little bit more land. Totally fine. I'm cool with that. Then it says, room enough on Gondwain for no fewer than 137,000 kingdoms. Right. So I divided 60 million square miles by 100 by no fewer than 137,000 kingdoms, and that means that on average, 
Each kingdom would have 400 square miles. So 20 by 20. 20 by 20. Now, to put that into context, that is smaller than any U.S. state. That is smaller than almost any European country, except for like the tiniest ones like the Vatican City. Um, it's about it's about half the size of the average U.S. Uh, county, um, and or it's actually even smaller than half. It's roughly equivalent to the size of the footprint of San Antonio, Texas, um, or Indianapolis, or the Badlands National Park. So, in mm. your opinion, is four hundred square miles a um, a good size for a uh, average kingdom size in a, in, a, in a gaming world? Is it too big? Is it too small? I, that's definitely a bit too small. If you think about how long they kind of wander around between nothingness, right, too, right. Uh, it, it, it doesn't really right. play out. Right. That's just some number he pulled out of his butt. But <laughs> having said that, if you were going to do low-level play, um, you could definitely do a lot in four hexes, four six-mile hexes, right? Mm-hmm. And then subdivide it into smaller units for whatever. Um, I mean, I think that would be like, you know, perfect for like Dolman would for, um, you know, the old school essentials or any of those kind of campaigns like that. And I think Hot Springs Island, you know, from the um, the guys down in Texas, that's not much more than like 20 miles by 30 miles with all yeah. the stuff that's going on there. So it can be done. Um, I agree. I feel like, um, you know, this is this, this series is clearly very inspired by the dying earth. Mm-hmm. And in the dying earth, Kugel is largely on foot and each place he goes tends to be wildly different than the next. So in the, in the, in the terms of like dying earth, I actually feel like 400 square miles per kingdom on average might actually be pretty accurate, but I agree with what you're saying, Todd, because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of aerial flight there's a lot of discussing the vast purple plains and these big expanses of land. And if we do have all these massively uninhabited areas and 400 square miles is the average, and that also means that there are areas where we're going to have like a much higher density. It, it doesn't, the math doesn't seem to work or make right. sense. Right. 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 I, I mean, it's pretty clear that, that, I mean, I, Lynn Carter, we know is quite erudite and he could pull a lot of facts out of his, you know, you know, thin air, but I think, this particular book is a lot of time. It seemed just like throwing a phrase up because it sounds good. Like the names of characters and all this. Like, oh, it just sounds cool. Right. And then it's, it's like, oh, 137,000. That's a great number. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know? Now, this book was written in 1975. So it is written after OD&D is already out, but it's written prior to AD&D. And we know that Gary Gygax was friends with Lynn Carter and that he recommended the World's End series do you think that there's anything that while you're reading this, you re- that really felt like it may have inspired some of the advanced Dungeons and Dragons or kind of uh, second wave of D&D thinking? So uh, I completely get a gaming vibe when, when I'm reading this book because they seem to wander from random encounter to random encounter like like it's a string of one-shot adventures. It, th- there's a big overarching story with one-shot adventures along mm-hmm. the way. And in all the uh, Appendix N stuff that I've read, uh, this one and uh, Saber Hagen's Empire of the East and some of the Elspragda Camp, 
uh, Goblin Tower and stuff, I get more of a Greyhawk kind of feel from these than I do from reading Tolkien or uh, Dunsany. Right, it's that mashup, it's uh, that mashup feel that you get from. Yeah, yeah, it, it, including you know, it's it's like our Earth. But it's kind of morphed around. And I know early on, Gygax just used a map of the world from the map of Greyhawk, and it wasn't until publication. Uh, so it, it makes me wonder was Greyhawk really our Earth, you know, millions of years in the future? So I, I just really get that 1970s gaming vibe right. when I read this story. In fact, a lot of people have mentioned like the Erek. That is Greyhawk a post-apocalyptic setting? Because you know, every once in a while they go to like, um, what's that? The expedition to the Barrier Peaks or White Plume Mountain and discover some kind of like you know uh, high science artifact that you know that they see as a magic item. Right, right. the apparatus of Qualish right, right. Oh. or the machine of Lum the Mad. Now here's one passage that is totally D and D, and it's just a really tiny thing. It's page one seventeen. They're in the Dragon's Horde. Yes. Okay. And he lists the coins in the exact order of their value in D&D, right? Yes. Holds yeah. or coins of copper, silver, gold, electrum, platinum, right? Literally yep. in the order of their value in D&D. So. And what's also funny to <laughs> yeah. me about that is that's not how it's listed in OD&D. Right. In OD&D, it's just copper. I believe I believe it's just copper, silver, and gold in OD&D. Right. Um, and then by AD&D, it's got this exact list in that exact order. <laughs> yep. Same. And, and, and I also feel like uh, it, this is like someone's D&D campaign, and the, the guy that plays Ganelon is the only one that shows up to every session. <laughs> <laughs> because the other characters kind of come in and right, out, right. but Ganelon's almost always right. there. Yeah. So I got that right. Vibe. And he's the guy who just like always just wants to play D&D, but he's not even that creative. So it's just like the guy. It's like, right? he yeah, up. he's got the lamest character that rolled up the best stats. Right, but he just shows up. It's like, okay. You know, it's like, and this one is a deep cut, but um, there are, I mean, clearly there's a lot of monster manual monsters listed here. Um, you know, and specifically things like the cockatrice and the wyvern are physically described in this story exactly the way that they are, that they appear in D&D, except the cockatrice doesn't have the stone, um, the the petrification power in this right. story. And doesn't um, have a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> it doesn't have a Brooklyn accent. But, um, but one thing that really stuck out for me was the mentioning of the Androsphinx. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in AD&D, our sphinxes are the androsphinx, the gynosphinx, and the hierosphinx. And I had never encountered the word androsphinx outside of D&D until I read this book. So out of curiosity, I googled androsphinx, being like, is this like a common piece of mythology? And really, the only stuff that really came up is just D&D stuff. So I wonder if Gary took the word androsphinx from here, um, and andro meaning the, being the Greek word for male. And then from that extrapolated the gynosphinx, um, it, it does seem like there's a, a very good chance that may have come directly from this. I mean, certainly the phrase, although the sphinx in the Oedipus is a female, I believe. So sure. But I, I specifically mean the naming, the, the naming, naming convention yeah. used. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, of course, Gurf's hanging out with the, uh, the androsphinx because it's half cat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> totally. <laughs> right. 
Well, he's hanging out the Lady Sphinx, yeah. The Lady Sphinx, yeah. <laughs> so Lynn Carter was a game designer. He designed at least two games. Right. Uh, the Royal Armies, uh, the Hyborian Age, and Flash Gordon and the Warriors of Mongo, mm-hmm. both for Fantasy Games Unlimited. So could that... Could there have been a gaming connection between him and Gary as well? Could he have played D&D with Gary and the Andro Sphinx was something that they had discussed? Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's very possible. I don't know. Yeah. The only one I know for sure ever did play D&D who's on the appendix end list is Andre Norton. I know right. that she definitely did. And then uh, Fritz right. Leiber had some gaming thing with, that he did with um, you know, that original uh, Lankmar game. But yeah, I don't think you played D. Yeah, yeah, the board yeah. game. And yeah, I, I know, know that Michael Moorcock definitely has not. Right. I don't know that. Um, <laughs> and to the extent that uh, I wasn't able to determine whether um, Lynn Carter did any mechanical design or if he was just more like the sort of story and fluff with those two games. Um, but I think that both he and Gary have that sort of magpie instinct. Like this thing is cool. This thing is cool. Let me pull this in. Let me pull this in. And I'll try to make it all work together. You know, and that's that's, right, that's right. what I think they had in definitely. common. And, you know, it's just cool. It doesn't matter that this is from Far Eastern mythology and this is, you know, cowboy stuff. It was, it'll was it be right next to each other. It'll be fine. <laughs> now, Todd, do you run 5e games? I, me personally, I've been running a 5e, but it's the Keep on the Borderlands, the Goodman Games Keep on the Borderlands. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly for 11 and 12 year olds. Would you introduce a walking, talking metal city? Or would you introduce a um, a city made of red glass that also has robots in something like that? Or do you want to, when you're playing kind of a more traditional D and D with a more tra- with, pe- with people have, who have traditional expectations, do you tend to kind of stick with what's expected? Well, if if it's uh, like a group that is new to D and D or lo- like these kids, I'm I'm trying to stick to. D and I want them to show up and play the D and D that their friends at school might tell them about. Mm. Now, my Tuesday night Castles and Crusades game, or my Saturday night AD and D first edition game, I will throw whatever I feel like in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I throw in pop culture references and characters and mechanical devices and little flying spaceships, wh- whatever I need. Uh, I'll just throw it in there. And sometimes uh, uh, someone will say, is it this? And I'll say, yes, yes, that's exactly what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> now, if somebody were to contact you about writing or uh, somehow supervising the creation of the world's end uh, campaign setting, uh, which rule set would you want to use for the for the campaign setting? I think we need to have this talk with Joseph. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> You're thinking Dungeon Crawl Classics, or even MCC. Yeah, yeah, I, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that can handle that sort sort of thing, and, and kind of the general craziness. You know, there need to be changes, like there were for Lankmar, but I totally think uh, it would be a perfect match. And the followers of that game are the ones that would love to play in this mm-hmm. world. Yeah. I'm also curious, once uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics Dying Earth is out, um, 
how compatible that would be for something like this, considering what a direct ripoff of the dying earth this is. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, I guess the, the, the dying earth is very explicit about the ma- magic system here. It's a little bit more hand wavy in terms of the magic system. Um, it's yeah. like, Oh, the legions can do this. And blah, blah, blah. And in fact, they have that appendix about like the 20 different flavors of magic in the appendix. Um, of which, right. uh, you know, six are yet to be discovered at this in, at this point in the story. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you guys familiar with Gathok's Vertical Slum? I have seen that briefly. That was um, for Swords and Wizardry originally, right? I think. Yeah, and it's it's D.L. Johnson's product, and it's also a uh, walking city. Uh, but it's also, but it's not it's not a machine. It's like a living godlike teleporting entity. That also just happens to have a really overpopulated city built upon its mountainous back, um, and it scurries around on these like little like um, on these like little baby feet, um, <laughs> and like and I think it's like like and, and like gourds keep falling off of it or something. I, f- I forget exactly how it, <laughs> how it moves around, but it's quite odd. Uh, but yeah, but I also feel like if you wanted to incorporate something like uh, Kaz, uh can into your game, Gathok's Vertical Slum is a good place to look. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, while I, I tend to agree and we are all sort of DCC players, DCC or MCC would work, I think that BX or Old School Essentials, because it's sort of very open, would be very well suited for running a, a, a World's End campaign. You know, you just have to have Ganelon start at like ninth level and everybody else is, you know, third level, you know, but... <laughs> but, the, but I think the DCC has that wildness and that swinginess that reflects the sort of craziness of the, the environment. So, I agree. Todd, Old School Essentials is really capturing a lot of the hearts, minds, and um, screen time of a lot of old school gamers right now. Um, do you have any thoughts about it as a system and how it might be for something like this? So I have it setting over on the table right. I can see it from where I am, the stack of stuff and i just haven't gotten around to look at that but i know it's on the d50 list right, there you go and, and and it's right back to your origins with bx right with yeah. uh, basic experts uh, right right you know. and um you know i've i've really been inspired i think you know the the writing of Molde's writing is very warm but just the accessibility of opening up the old school essentials book and saying oh i would need to find this thing it's right there in front of me um is, is pretty incredible and, uh, you know, using the old school games like that in general, uh, it's it's so much fun and, and open. And if you're playing with young people that have never played a role-playing game before, uh, a system like that can actually be better than trying to get them into D&D 5th edition. Mm-hmm. It's just it has the benefit of being mentioned on Stranger Things and their friends are playing right. it. But if you're starting with younger players, uh, games like that would be perfect for right. them. And, and of course, what they're actually playing in Stranger Things is, you know, probably Beck Me or, or you know, BX. It's, yeah. just, it's just a question yeah. of people like, oh, I'm playing D&D. So as far as I'm concerned, most people think D&D is fifth edition. And I know a lot of people right. are like, well, I don't have 30 different races and these feats built in. You know, that's kind of a limitation for me. But there's nothing to stop you from doing that in BX. But People don't, they want to have it sort of laid out for them mechanically already. A, a lot of people, I guess. And I would have been the same way about 10 years ago. So, I mean, also, right. there are times where I've run DD for people and I'm like, okay, cool. So we're going to play DD. And especially if they're people who haven't really played DD much before, and I'm actually running Dungeon Crawl Classics, 
or I'm running <laughs> something that's kind of a combination of a bunch of rule sets I like. Um, and, and, and but I do let them know, like once the game's going a little bit, being like, hey, guys, just so you know, like this is kind of this is actually this other game. Or this is kind of my kind of personal combo of a bunch of different rule sets. Uh, so if you play D&D with somebody else, it might look differently. But like, whatever, it's all D&D. Right, right. You, have, you haven't had anyone to flip the table yet. I, I hear people say stuff like this all the time. Uh, I've never really played d and I've played Pathfinder for five years, but I've never really played D&D. And I'm like, dude, you've played D&D. <laughs> right. yeah, you've played D&D for five years, just under a different name. Right. Yeah. Which actually might be, this might be a great ch- uh, little opportunity for you to tell us a little bit about D50 Shades of D&D, because that's exactly what your upcoming podcast is about. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, actually it was Rick Hall's idea. He, he came to me and we all love all these old school games. And he uh, came up with a list one day and he was easy, easily able to come up with 50 of them. And he came and presented the idea to James and myself. And I was just fascinated in which we we were going to go in and we're going to look at, you know, anything vaguely D&D-ish, including old editions of D&D, retro clones, neo clones. Uh, You know, we could potentially do Pathfinder, you know, Dungeon Crawl Classics, Castles and Crusades. Those are the obvious Mm -hmm. ones. But like old school essentials and Blue Home, we we have stacks of those sitting around. And we're going to take a look at each one and and try to help people decide why you would play this version as opposed to just playing Mm D&D or uh, what the appeal of this one or or what's different about it. So I actually go in and and explain to people in, in a certain amount of words this is why these games exist it's also i think a a great way of looking at how to potentially kind of build your own module modular um house rules as well Mm -hmm. because maybe you don't want to play maybe you don't want to play lamentations of the flame princess the core rulebook but you really like the summoning spell and you really like the idea that the only people who move up in their attacks as they get stronger are are the fighter class Um, like you can find like kind of one or two things also about each version of D&D and take what you like. And do you think that there is a system that is maybe the best, um, not to introduce gamers to, but if I said, I want to understand the underlying way that this, you know, quote unquote D&D works, you know, which system is the best to look at and then say, oh, I can go beyond that. And okay, this leads me to this style of play. This leads me to this style of play. And my instinct for that would be 5e. And the reason I say that is 5e was kind of designed to be the balance between old school and modern gaming. It was designed to make the OSR crowd happy and the new school of gamers happy. And I could see, I could very easily see any 13 year old who starts playing with 5e going either the super crunchy route or the kind of looser, more kind of Mm -hmm. story route. Right. Yeah. My, 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 thought and then maybe this is i've been gaming too long so you know i can't take myself completely outside of the mindset of someone who already knows games is that bx or old school essentials would be a good way to go about because to me i think sometimes it's easier to add stuff in than take stuff out of a system that is already have a lot of uh you know um systems working together totally well, guys, this has been a really awesome and fun conversation. Todd, is there anything about World's End that you really wanted to chat with us about before we wrap this episode up? 
So, so I just want to say this thing. Rick Hall brought it up uh, a little before we started recording that Lynn Carter is he's kind of a D&D player ish kind of guy because he takes ideas that somebody else did and turns them into his characters. So he's kind of to, to me, he's kind of the ultimate dungeon master because he's stealing stuff from all these books that he read and he's cramming them into like his own little fantasy world. And it's, it's what we as dungeon masters do all day long. And I sometimes feel like he has spent more time reading other people's stuff than he ever spent working on his own stuff. <laughs> and then he crams stuff together out of everything that he's read. <laughs> Oh, also, real quick before we wrap up, I also realized I would not want to close this episode without also acknowledging the Museum of Swords and the moment where he's looking at the swords renowned in tale and story. Right. And there, and he's uh, looking at all the swords that are found in the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit books. Yeah. He sees uh, Stormbringer. And Warnblade, yep. Yep, yep. And Cat's uh, Claw and... Um, Ray Wand and... Sword of well. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And also there's the the sword from Elspring to Camps, the Reluctant King. We've right. got the Chronicles of Narnia in there, yeah. Lord Dunsany, William Morris, yeah. all of these like great magical swords from fiction. And that just further amplifies what you were just saying, which is that he's clearly done a lot of time reading. And like this is why he's doing yeah, what he's right. doing. And to sort of expand on your point, he never transcends his influence. He's just like very proud of his influences. And he loves his influence, but he never transcends them, right? He's just like, yeah. this is the thing I love. Here it is. Enjoy it. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> so, uh, Todd, at the time that we're recording this, D50 Shades of D&D is not yet available, but this will be airing in a little over a month. So by that time, it might be. Uh, for people who are curious about listening to the show, do you know yet how they can look for you? Not yet. <laughs> That's fine. But uh, I'm sure if you Google D50 Shades of D&D, by the time it's available, it should be findable. Uh, and also we'll most likely have a link to it in our show notes at that point. There you go. And um, are there any other, uh, you know, meetups or anything like that where people can, you know, learn more about uh, Gateway Games, play with you, anything like that that you might want to mention to us? Well, mostly uh, we have the Gateway Games uh, Facebook page, and I post stuff on it all the time. Uh, I'll be at GaryCon, hanging out and playing games with everybody. Heck yeah. And You're my GaryCon buddy. I, I, also, <laughs> I also need to throw in that I've had several people tell me that Whenever I'm talking and instead of saying podcast, I should have said Toddcast <laughs> like every time. <laughs> so this is the Appendix N Book Club Toddcast. There you go. <laughs> so, I love it. So I had to throw that. It's now canon. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for uh, joining us on the Toddcast today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so Hoy, how can people find us? Yes, if you want to uh, drop us an email, we're at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, please rate us, uh, review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us, whether it's iTunes, uh, Google Play, or one of the others. And uh, how about our Patreon, Jeff? Yes, so you can go to Appendix N Book Club. Um, actually, it would be patreon.com slash appendix n book club. 
and you can show us your support over there. Uh, we do really appreciate your support. Uh, we'd like to give a quick shout out to a few of our supporters. Thank you to Noah Green, Robbie Fioto, Stanley Rizuski, uh, Vasily Kalaman, Ethan Schoonover, Eric Johnson, Patrick Kreps, and Andy Action. Also, we had a great uh, patron book club discussion before this episode with our buddy Adam. Uh, so that was fun. I think it was his fifth in a row that he's attended. So it's cool that we've got somebody who's now like actually reading each book along with us and chatting with us as we go. Uh, that's very fun and very exciting. So Adam, thanks for joining us on that journey. Thank you. So Todd, it's awesome having you on. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's amazing. All right. Thanks for having me. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>